One. Oh, man, he is a funny guy, right? It's amazing that uh, how many of you were, like, raised like that, right? I mean, yeah, you know what I'm talking about, right? Mom says, you better raise your hand, right? Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, it's funny. The, it's amazing that we're not all, like, crazy, right? Uh, some of the things that we do that I've done uh, with my kids, I, it's funny, I've got three. My, my youngest one, we've kind of learned our way. My oldest one, she complains the way we raise her, and I said, well, you are a crash test dummy. So that's just the way that it works. But uh, let me uh, kind of start by saying this to you uh, today. I find it difficult to imagine, now follow me, to imagine, and maybe you'll feel the same way, that anyone could love me no matter what. I mean, think about it. I mean, it's funny when you watch things like that and you hear about how we raised our kids, but we learned at a young age that love is kind of one of those things that's earned. I know we say it's unconditional. I know we say that, that we love our kids unconditionally, and, and we do, right? We love our kids unconditionally as long as they do everything we say, right? Uh, we love them unconditionally, and, uh, but we kind of learn this message. We get this message early in our childhood, and as we grow up, we get this message that love is something that is earned. If you go to bed when you're supposed to, right, then you'll receive my love. Um, If you eat your veggies, then you will receive my love. If you do what I say, then your parents will give you the love that you desire. And so sometimes kids are like, I don't want it, and they defy anyways. And sometimes they just do it so that they will get their parents' love. It happens to all of us. Uh, But if you cry, right, if you cry and keep me up all night, I'm going to withhold my love. You're not going to be my favorite person in the world. If you keep me up, if you mess up the house and destroy the house, then I'm going to withhold my love. And so we learn this at a very early age. I don't think it's on purpose. I really don't. I don't think that uh, parents intend to send this message, but this is the message that we hear. And so we grow up thinking that love is something that is earned. Uh, Love is something that if I'm good, then good things will happen to me and those types of things. It sort of becomes the wisdom of the world. Think about it with me. Now follow with me. It doesn't just happen as you're a child and you grow up, but it goes on into school junior high and high school and college and into your careers and even now some of you have this wisdom of the world that the good prosper and the bad don't or that the strong will survive and the weak will waver right and this is kind of the wisdom, and we grow up with this, and we need you to be good, because if you're good, then you'll be accepted, and if you're accepted, you'll belong, and if you belong, then I'll love you, and blah, 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 blah. You say, I don't, I've never done that. I know, we don't do it intentionally. But it's the message that we grow up learning. Relationships are something like a contract that we grow up with. 
And as long as I do everything that's expected of me, then that person will love and accept me. And as long as they do everything I expect of them, then I will love and accept them. And so we grow up thinking that relationships are kind of contractual in that way. You don't believe me? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to get up tomorrow, and I want you to go to work, and I want you to go into your boss's office, and I want to tell you to tell them where they can take the job and shove it. Or, don't be that brash, I, I would like you to get up tomorrow, go to work, go and, you, and just don't get the deadline done that the boss put on you. Don't do what they ask you to do. And if you really want to get their attention, do something so bad that you cost the company a lot of money. And let's see how much they love you. And we do that. We live like that. We, we go to work and we are good and we behave and we do everything we're told because we don't want to go in for our next review and hear about it. And we want that promotion or we want that raise. And we know that if we don't do what they say, it won't happen. We go all in on this mentality, this wisdom of the world and to the point with where when you're in school and you don't perform, you're afraid that you're not going to get the grades. And if you don't get the grades, the college won't accept you. And if the college doesn't accept you, then you're not going to get the job. And if you don't, or you don't get the, the college education, if you don't get the college education, you're not going to get the job you want. If you don't get the job you want, then you're going to be a failure at life. So you grow up thinking, hey, school kind of, well, some of us do, some of you don't care, but school kind of equals success or failure, right? And so you go all in on this and you start to think, I've got to perform for anyone to love and accept me. Or you have to be cool to be accepted. And so you give in to peer pressure and you do things that you would have thought you'd never done so that people will like you, people will accept you, people will love you. And then you become a workaholic, pouring yourself into your job because you've got something to prove to your family and to uh, your kids, your, your wife, and to your employer that you're good enough. You'll perform beyond their expectations. And so the wisdom of the world sort of says this. Strive, earn, work hard, impress everyone around you, prove to everyone This is sort of the wisdom of the world that we grow up in. That success and acceptance and belonging and even love itself comes when I am good. But when you're bad, what happens? When you fail, what happens? When you mess up, what happens? And so we buy into this worldview that performance is how we get accepted and loved. And so it makes total sense to me when we step into the spiritual world and we start to have this concept of God that early on we start, it makes perfect sense that we start to look at God the same way. Imagine with me an all-knowing God Who knows everything about you? Oh boy. 
Imagine an all-knowing God who knows everything about us. How in the world could a God who knows everything about me still love me? After all that I've done and thought and said, and how could he love me? No matter what. I mean, isn't this the same God of the Bible who judges the wicked? I mean, are we talking about the same God who sends floods to wipe out every living thing that is wicked? Is this the same God who knows all, knows me, who you say loves me no matter what? Is this the same God who judges the wicked, sends floods, sends plagues to people so that he can get what he wants? Is this the same God who sends people to hell? Y'all better straighten up, right? You better get your act together. You better be a little better than you are. So, isn't this the same God who says to people, be holy as I am holy? I mean, who can do that? God sort of raises the bar so high, and it's like, who can reach the bar? Who can get up to it? Who can reach that bar and be good enough? How can this God who raises this bar so perfect, so holy, so just awesome, how can I ever be like him? And how can I ever please him? I'll never be good enough. So people usually do one of three things. They step onto three, one of three paths that I have found in my life as a pastor and being in the church my whole life and myself included have done these. When you feel like you just can't do enough, you just can't be good enough, you, when you just seems like God is always there and you're messing up and it just seems to me like some people just stop. They give up. They walk away. They give up on God. They walk down the path that leads them to stop trying to even please God at all. And they stop believing. How could a God like that exist? And I think that another thing, a second road that people take, is that they kind of turn God into this big softy. Sometimes we want a God to accept us and love us to the point where we just say, we can do anything we want, and God's okay with that. The first way is not right. The second way is not right either. And then there's a third way, and so many of us in the church have fallen into this trap. They just become so rigid and legalistic that they're not good either, but they got really good at hiding it. And so they hide their imperfection, and they judge everyone who's not like them. There's people like that in the church too. And so people take one of three roads when they feel like God is this God who has this expectation that they can't live up to. We tend to go one of three ways. So where are you at today? And if it wasn't enough, pressure on us to be good enough, God 
goes and gives his people ten rules to live by. (laughs) As if it wasn't enough, Lord, we know we can't be enough. And God says, okay, here are ten commandments. I mean, the word commandment even carries this ominous, like, I command you, right? And so God goes, and when things, this pressure to add up, this pressure to perform, this pressure to be good, this pressure to not make mistakes, this pressure to be awesome through life and just please God with our... When we feel as though we can't do that, God goes and gives us these Ten Commandments. And then He ties to the command this idea that if you keep this law, you'll be blessed. But if you break this law, you'll be cursed. (laughs) And it just creates this tension in our life. Like, I can't do this. Today we're looking at Exodus 20, where God gives the Ten Commandments. I just want to start with verse, the first verse. And God spoke all these words. Verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So as I looked at this and I read this, something pops out at me in this is, is, you know, we want to get to the commands, right? Because we are wired. Give me the rules. I'll keep them and we'll be fine. We're wired that way. I want to get to the rules, but God starts out the giving of the Ten Commandments with these two verses. And this is important. And I want you to hear this because this is going to... Some of you are in bondage to the performance trap. And some of you aren't trying to do anything good at all. You're, just trying, you're about to give it up and walk out. What I'm about to teach you this morning will free you to realize that God is for you, not against you, okay? You say, but He gives us rules that we can't keep. Yes, but I'm going to get there. Just hold on. Here's something I want you to see with these two verses. It's this. That God, before He gives the Ten Commandments, before He gives the rules to live by, He begins with relationship. See, we want to look at things like a contract. Tell me what i got to do, and I'll do my best to keep it, and you do the best to keep your end. And a contract is like that. A contract is this agreement between two people that if you do everything that's in the contract, and I do everything that's in the contract, we'll continue to be in relationship to each other. But once you break the contract, it's over. And we approach God that way sometimes. But God doesn't look at His covenant as a contract. He looks at it as a covenant. Covenants are different. Covenants bind people together no matter what. God leads with the relationship before he ever gets to the rules. You say, well, Tony, what are you talking about? God did something for them before they even asked for it. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe not. I'll tell you. God did something for the people of Israel, and they never asked for it. They never begged for it. They were never performed for it. They simply were slaves in another land, and God did something for them. God brought them out of Egypt 
and out of the land of slavery before he ever gave them a rule. And that's important for us. Maybe you have a different view of God. God expects something from me before he'll ever love me, right? And some people approach God like that. I've had people tell me, I don't want to go into the church. I'm afraid the ceiling might fall on me. Or God will never forgive me of this. Or God will never accept me because I've done this or I've done that. Or, you know, I've wrecked this life and I've, God, I'm, my life's a mess and God will never accept me. Maybe you have that view of God. But I want you to hear today that God did something for the people of Israel before he ever gave them a rule. And that tells me that God puts relationship first. Maybe you expected this verse to read, I'll be the Lord your God if you promise to. <laughs> That's how we tend to live. So God, in verse 2, reminds them of His everlasting love and His commitment to them. Three months ago, God says, you remember, guys, I brought you out three months ago. You were slaves in Egypt. For 400 years, your people have been slaves. All of you standing here that has just been brought out of Egypt, you have no idea what it's like to be free. You have no idea what another life could possibly be. You were slaves to the Pharaoh in Egypt. Just three months ago, you had no hope. You had no God. You had no story. You had no faith. You had no land. And then out of nowhere, Israel, I did something incredible for you. I stepped in and took care of you. I called a man through a burning bush named Moses, and I sent him to the Pharaoh. I sent you a deliverer. I loved you before you ever did anything for me. I did something for you. Don't forget it, he says. We know how the story goes. And if you don't, Moses goes to Pharaoh. And he says to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh refuses. Nature goes crazy. We've got frogs and wind and hail and plagues and flies and locusts and darkness and gnats and death of livestock. I mean, all these things happen to the Egyptian people. And yet Pharaoh still won't let them go. And so God had to do something drastic. Egypt was decimated by the plagues, and yet Pharaoh still was proud and would not let them go. So just like Abraham, you remember last week we talked about Abraham and his covenant, God's covenant with him. Just like Abraham, once again, God comes to his people and he says, trust me. Trust me. You've done nothing for me. You've not earned this. You've not performed. You've, you've not done anything to call me down to do this for you. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to trust me. And God says, I'm going to send an angel. And the angel is going to take the life of every firstborn child in all of Egypt. But my people, I want you to do this. I want you to take a lamb. And I want you to take the blood from the lamb and put the blood over the doorpost of your house and when the angel comes through those who have the blood on the doorpost will be saved 
sounds like kind of a stupid thing to do, right? But he says, trust me. If you know the story, the angel came. It was called the first Passover. The angel passed over the houses that had the blood on the posts. But the firstborn in all of Egypt died who was not covered by the blood. Now they were free. Why? Did they earn it? Did God ask them to do something and then he would do something for them? No, he just did it because he had a plan. He did something for them and he said, simply trust me. Now the Apostle Paul put it this way. Next verse. It was through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise. Now listen, that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. That is the only requirement that God asks of us. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to clean your life up. You don't have to, to obey a certain list of rules and then God will accept you. God loves you now, no matter what. And all he asks of you, the, the righteousness that comes to you is not through your good works. It comes to you through your faith. You say, well, what does that mean? It means you believe. You trust. You put your trust in God and what he has done for us. The relationship that was established between Abraham and, and God and God and the people of Abraham, the Israelites, was established not through their works or through something they did. It was established through their trust in God. Those who trusted God were saved. Verse 3 of Exodus. Now he gets to the first thou shalt not. Don't get these confused. God did something for them because he loved them. And now that he has a relationship with those who trust him, he now gets to the first command. It's not that the commandments are not important. Of course they're important. But the commandments were not the prerequisite to a relationship. Listen, the commandments were not a condition of the relationship. The commandments were a confirmation of it. It's not that they had to do good things to be saved. It's that now that they were saved through their faith, now God has called them to do good things. God loves us no matter what. He loves us before we ever do anything to deserve it. As a matter of fact, most of us right now at our place in our life, we don't deserve God's love, but he loves us anyways. He has established a relationship, not through works, but he establishes a relationship with us through our faith, through our belief in him. God loves us recklessly. You say, well, what is that? We were saying that song recklessly. What does that mean God loves recklessly? And, and I take it to mean this, that God has taken all the risks to love us. 
He requires nothing of us to love us. He simply loves us. He takes on all the risks. He takes upon himself this possibility that we might not love him back, but yet he loves us no matter what. Still not convinced? Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What? But God demonstrates his love for us. Once we had done everything that he commanded, he saved us. No, that's not what it says. Paul got it. He understood it. He was in this Romans chapters 4 and 5 trying to discuss how we have relationship with God. He understands the wisdom of the world says you got to earn this. you gotta, you got to be good enough to, for God to even accept you or, or love you. He understood the wisdom of the world, the one that we grew up with, the one that we live in the middle of. But God says, God does something that's just absolutely crazy. He actually demonstrates his love for us, not by demanding that we be good, but while we were still sinners, while we were still scoundrels and doing wrong and running from God and not giving God the, any time of the day, we were saved because God chose to save us. Nothing we did. And so when we think we can earn our salvation, we trample upon the greatness of what God has done for us. It's free. I mean, this is stupid, right? I mean, this isn't how the world works. It seems foolish to me to lay your life down for someone that might not even appreciate it. Why in the world would, would he lay his life down and die for someone who wouldn't even appreciate it? Seems silly to me. All the wisdom of the world, all the wisdom that, that I have of worldly wisdom says that is foolish. That's foolishness. I mean, there's a pretty good chance... Jesus, that you laying down your life and suffering and being beaten and hung on a cross for us, there's a pretty good chance, Jesus, that your actions will be in vain. Because there's a pretty big risk that no one will love you for it. Remember what we've learned in life, that wisdom of the world says you have to earn, not risk, love. Maybe he just died for the good people, right? Well, when you find the good people, you let me know. And I guarantee you, they're not so good as you think they are. But God demonstrates to us in Jesus on a cross that he loves us no matter what. Didn't have to earn it, but he did it anyway. Paul put it this way in Corinthians. Is it there? Do I have 1 Corinthians? 
Whoa, that's little tiny writing. We put that all on one, one. I'm old, man. I can't read that. I'll look at this one. You okay looking at my, my, my back and my head there? Yeah, I know. I'm going bald. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There doesn't seem anything powerful about someone laying their life down foolishly for a bunch of people who won't return the favor. That doesn't seem powerful to me. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate where is the where are the wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. We couldn't know him unless he revealed himself to us. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Well, what was preached, Paul? Christ crucified. That Jesus laid down his life and loved you no matter what. That's what he preached. Jews demanded signs and Greeks looked for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, human wisdom and the wickedness of God is stronger than human strength. <laughs> what are you saying, Paul? What are we supposed to do with that? God loves you no matter what. Love him back. Love him back. Give your life to him. Lay down your life for him. Love him back with your life and obey him as Lord of your life. Not so that he might love you back, but simply because he loved you first. He loved you no matter what. Our worship team is going to come and close in a song. I want you to know this morning that God is for you, not against you. He knows. Here's the strange thing. When he gave the Israelites those Ten Commandments, he knew they couldn't keep them. He knew that. He knows that you can't keep every letter of the law, but he loved you no matter what. He laid down his life for you so that you can be saved. <laughs> Say, well, what does that mean? The righteousness, the righteousness, that you and I strive for, the goodness we strive it comes from knowing Jesus. He does this in us. Something transforms us when we give our life to the one who laid his life down for us. It's a powerful thing. Paul said it. It seems foolish to us, but it's powerful that he would lay down his life for us no matter what. I don't know where you're at today. If you're listening online, I don't know what where you're at in your life. Maybe you're striving to please God and you just, you're just you either giving up or you're pretending to be something you're not. I want you to know this morning that all you need to do is lay your life down and love Him back.
just love him back this morning. Say, Jesus, I am not good enough. I'll never be good enough. I need you. I love you. I follow you. Thank you for saving me no matter what. One, two, three.